Well, hi, everybody. Dennis Prager here for the 150th Fireside Chat. Here's the, here's the interesting thing, among other interesting things. I didn't expect this thing to go more than five. We tried it out, and I thought, I don't know, where's this thing going to go? Just talking to people uh, from my home, and it really obviously has caught on. So I want to show you, we have, of course, Otto, may he live and be well, and his uh, brother Snoopy. And this is very rare to get both guys in it. I don't know why Snoopy's in here right now. He usually avoids the fireside chat it's because he watches them later. He, he prefers it on screen. But uh, anyway, they're doing good. How are everything good? Good man. If I, if I, uh, the problem is I would rub Snoop, but then he would turn on his back. Because the second you start rubbing him, he wants you to rub his tummy. He has a very tough life, I gotta tell you. Where will I be rubbed next? That is what is on his mind. You ever ask what's on a dog's mind? That's it. When will I be rubbed next? Anyway, welcome. Did I say who I was? I, I know people know, but you're supposed to say, did I say I'm Dennis Prager? No. Anyway, I am. <laughs> Great to be with you, everybody. And I open up with some comments. I just want to remind everybody, this is unrehearsed. And there's, a, there's always a gamble when you have total spontaneity, obviously. Uh, you, you, know, you, you may not formulate every thought exactly as you would have had you prepared some written text. On the other hand, it's got a much bigger advantage of the authenticity and spontaneity of words from the heart, as it were. So, got some thoughts, and I'm going to take your questions. So, just uh, this past weekend, I uh, saw a video on the internet of uh, young people. It was a pretty big crowd. It was a mob, I believe, in Oakland, California, and they were chanting Death to America. So, I, I have to believe this is a first. I don't think we've had uh, death to America chance in the history of America. I, I, I mean, I'm trying to think. Uh, certainly, I don't think in my lifetime, no matter how wild the left ever got, uh, and it's gotten wild, but this, this is a new low, and it's worthy of some comment. How, how, does, how did America produce people who chant death to America. Is it that bad? I mean, I guess that's one possible option, right? It's just so bad that it is worthy of death. But that's, uh, that's not the case. America's a good country. It's being ruined uh, by the left, not by liberals. Liberals are allowing the left to do it, but they don't do it. One of the traits that I have always identified with the left is one of the ugliest of the human condition. It's ingratitude. To live in, in this country, the freest ever created, more opportunities than any country, which is why vast numbers of people want to come here more than any other country. To live here and to crap on it is a form of ingratitude that is almost breathtaking. It is breathtaking, actually. 
I have I have always felt that I was unbelievably lucky to be in America. And I, I was given that attitude by my father, who, like me, is, was a Jew. And my father's a senior class thesis at City College of New York, and that would have been, let's see, in what decade, I guess? He was born in 1918, so at 20 would be 38. Yeah, I guess the late 1930s. Hard to believe. My dad wrote his senior class thesis on anti-Semitism in America. And just to give you a few examples, uh, many, uh, many uh, law firms did not allow uh, Jews to join their law firms. Harvard had its famous number system allowing a certain percentage of Jews and no more. Uh, there were plenty of places that would not sell a home to a Jew. Uh, and the mo- one of the most famous uh, uh, radio broadcasters of the time was Father Coughlin, a, a, a terrible anti-Semite. And yet my father raised my brother and me to believe we were the luckiest Jews in Jewish history to live in America. And he was right. And I've, I've taught Jewish history at Brooklyn College, wrote, wrote a book on anti-Semitism, Why the Jews. I know this uh, subject rather well. And uh, I knew he was right. See, everything needs to be put in perspective. There was anti-Semitism in America, but America was not an anti-Semitic country. It was good to be a Jew in America at any time in American history. That's why it was a Jew who wrote God Bless America, uh, Irving Berlin. And I, I th- was it the 40s? I, check it out. I mean, I, I, even at a time, he knew, Irving Berlin knew there was anti-Semitism in America. I, and I'm sure he experienced it. And yet he wrote God Bless America. Because Jews had a perspective. Jews did not compare America to utopia, a land where there was not one anti-Semite. They compared America to other countries, like European countries, all of which were more anti-Semitic. They, they, countries were often anti-Semitic, not just some individuals. What year did you see? Did you, did you look that up? During World War I in 1918. Oh, I'm wrong. It was even earlier. And then revised. It, it was written in 1918 and? Revised during World War II in 1938. And revised in 38. Oh, so exactly in 38 is what the year I was talking about. So how could a Jew write God bless America when just the things that I described to you happened because Jews had perspective. They didn't compare America, as I said, to utopia, but to other countries. That's all you can do in life. You have to compare person X, not to an angel, but to persons Y, A, B, C, D, and E. That's what mature people, people with even a modicum of wisdom and common sense do. You don't compare it to perfection. According to the standards of perfection, we're all awful, but there are good people. But even good people are awful compared to perfection. This is a wonderful country for blacks, whites, Jews, Asians, gays, you name it. 
That's why people who are in any group want to move to this country. Three million blacks, as I've often told you, have moved to the, the United States in the last 20 or so years. Two million from Africa, one million from the Caribbean. And as I always ask, are they nuts? Are they crazy? Why would they move to a place that hates blacks? Because it doesn't hate blacks. It's, a, it's one of the greatest lies. I consider it one of the greatest lies in history that America is, is a racist country. And then, of course, whenever people respond to me, they go, Prager said there are no racists in America. Because if you actually quote me correctly, you don't have a good answer. But if you make up something I said, then you can answer it brilliantly. I never said there are no racists in America. I don't say there are no anti-Semites in America. I say that America has been the greatest country outside of Israel for Jews in the history of the world, knowing that there are anti-Semites in America. That's a separate issue. There are 340 million people in the United States. You're going to get some bad people uh, in, in any country. By the way, I know this is amazing. I'll bet you there are some blacks who hate whites. Uh, I mean, I'm just guessing. But I was taught in college, I was taught, let alone what kids are taught today, there's no such thing as a black racist. If you're black, you can't be a racist. That's one of the reasons I knew that the universities uh, were becoming centers of irrationality, pure irrationality, and that their commitment to truth was, uh, was negligible. The, it's an absurdity that a black can't be a racist. It's, it's absurd. Can a black be a racist? They say, well, they don't have power. Well, that's not true. Some blacks have power. Some whites have power. Do all whites have power? I mean, it's an absurdity. My friend Adam Carolla, you know, we made our movie together, uh, No Safe Spaces, and in it, he talks about his background. If you want to talk about white privilege, you must remove Adam Carolla from your list. <laughs> it's it's, it's the, the absurdity of it all white privilege you're privileged if you have two parents in your life if you have a father in your life you're privileged if you're American you're privileged if you grow up with good values that's that's the biggest those are the biggest privileges of all I'd be very curious about how many of those yelling death to America grew up with uh, with two parents in their lives I, I'd just be curious I'd also like to know what their parents think. I would just, I wouldn't even argue with them. I'd just like to know, what did the parents think? Did they raise them to think death to America? These are uh, bad people. If there's such a thing, by the way, as good people, then there is such a thing as bad people. Uh, people I love when people say, oh, there's no such thing as a bad person. Well, if there's no such thing as a bad person, there is no such thing as a good person, correct? I mean, it, it, how can you only have a world where there are good people, but there are no bad people? These are, these are bad people. Death to America, wow. The people must look and wonder what, what is going on with the United States of America, that there were young people who could chant that. So, as I said, it, it emanates in part from the worst human trait, ingratitude. And that's my thought on watching 
something truly unbelievable. But I want to add one more thing. While obviously Joe Biden and Barack Obama would never say death to America, there's no question in my mind they would not say that. And I believe they would be horrified by it. Nevertheless, when they say, and they both have said that they want, Barack Obama said this in in 2008, right before he was elected, we are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. Fundamentally, when you want to fundamentally transform a place, that is a form of wanting to destroy what you have and making something new, correct? Fundamentally transforming is, uh, is I destroy the present and make something new. That's what it means. If I fundamentally transform your face, it's not because I love your face the way it is, correct? <laughs> that, that's, that's the way it works. We fundamentally transform what we can't stand. And uh, they, the left wants to fundamentally transform America. I don't. Because I know the options uh, in the world. I, I want to improve America. But I don't want to fundamentally transform it. And the people who do are going to destroy it. And they're not going to have something better in its place. Okie doke. Time for the video question of the week. Take it away. Hey Dennis, my name is Ezekiel Zerba. I'm 17 years old and I'm from Ranch Cucamonga, California. So my question for you today is um, maybe if you can share your thoughts on what you think about various churches and synagogues opening up in light of the COVID pandemic. Um, I know that a lot of churches, including my own um, home church, are being criticized for reopening the doors and continuing services like normal. And um, I know that some people use the argument of separation of church and state to support churches opening up. And I know some people that argue against that. So I'm just wondering, maybe you could share your thoughts about that and uh, maybe any counter arguments that you would have regarding that topic. So, um, yeah, thank you for everything that you do. And um, I look forward to hearing your answer. Well, thank you. That was Ezekiel in Rancho Cucamonga. I visited Rancho Cucamonga once. I went to a Rancho Cucamonga Quakes baseball game. And they took me to the dugout. It was a lot of fun. Okay. Uh, on churches and synagogues having services. If, uh, if you read uh, my column that is just out, where I say the, the, the lockdown has gone from mistake to crime... I, I called it the probably the greatest mistake in human history, uh, the worldwide lockdown. And I, of course, made it clear a mistake is not evil. There are much, obviously, you know, genocide is evil. A lockdown is a mistake. So I want to make that clear. And I made it clear when I first wrote about it four months ago. But now it's, uh, it's no longer a great mistake. It is now uh, a crime, in my opinion. Uh, I live in California where people still cannot go into a restaurant and eat inside. You can eat inside an airplane, but you can't eat inside where you're an inch from somebody and you're one foot away from the person in front of you, the person behind you, the person diagonally behind you. This is all within a few feet and you are all eating without your mask because you can't eat with a mask and that's fine. 
And it's fine because the government has decided that the airlines are critical to the economy, but you who run a restaurant, you're nothing. You're a total nothing to the left. In fact, they can't stand you. People who own businesses tend to be conservative, tend to be entrepreneurial, uh, tend to not rely on the government. And uh, so they, the truth is they couldn't care less if you go out of business. And that is certainly true uh, with uh, Gavin Newsom, Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles. Newsom is the governor of California. So I, I, I am uh, appalled that you can't eat in a restaurant. I'm appalled that you can't get a haircut indoors, uh, uh, that you can't go to a nail salon. And uh, all these people, uh, most of whom are immigrants from Asia, running nail salons, who are, are just being drained of all their money uh, by uh, much richer people like Gavin Newsom, who don't give a damn about the, the Vietnamese women who run these nail salons. They're nothing to them. It, it originally the purpose of the lockdown was to not overrun hospitals and ICU units. Right. Remember that? Very rapidly, they weren't being overrun. They had an entire Java center in Manhattan, almost unused. They had a ship offshore on both coasts, never used. Remember that? And they still didn't open up. So it was, it was a lie. Oh, as, as soon as we don't, we're not overwhelming hospitals, then people will be free to live their lives as they see fit. Like they did 1968 to 1970. 100,000 Americans died of what was called the Hong Kong flu. Nothing closed. Nothing. It's a totally different America than 68, 70. People understood viruses come, viruses go. You don't wreck a society because there's a virus. Herd immunity is, is in fact the answer, probably, overwhelmingly likely. If enough people get it, uh, then uh, it, it pretty much ends. Otherwise, it doesn't end. That's why they keep saying, oh, when a vaccination comes, most people aren't going to take a vaccination or at least half the people won't take this vaccination. I've taken flu shots. I've taken every vaccination I've given my kids. I'm not, gonna, I'm not taking this one. Something that is created this fast, uh, having the virus in it. Uh, I'm happy with hydroxychloroquine and, and zinc. And the dismissal of that is, is evil. People are dying because people won't recommend a completely safe substance. Been taken 65 years. Some people take it all their lives for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, it is beyond belief what, uh, what lies we live through uh, in, in our time right now. So back to your churches. If I, don't, if I think that we should allow nail salons to open, I certainly think we should allow synagogues and churches to open. Uh, but uh, we think that liquor stores are important. They're open. There, there you can go. But you can't, you can't go into a church. We live in a free country. Oh, you say, well, you're not free to make me sick. Who's asking you to go to church? If you think going to church will make you sick, nobody's forcing you to go to church or to the nail salon or to the hair salon. But here's the point. The, the chances of your dying uh, from COVID, if you don't have a secondary or tertiary illness, 
or condition are minuscule, just minuscule. In the United States, according to the CDC, 94% of the people who are listed as having died of COVID had another 2.6 fatal conditions or terribly serious conditions. And we're over 70, usually over 80. You're, you're a 45-year-old individual with no, with, with no comorbidity, and you, you, you are being prevented six months in from going to church? Who the hell gives the governor the right to do that even? Or you're too scared to go? The media have done such a great job in, in frightening Americans. And it frightens me that Americans got frightened so fast and so easily. The land of the free and the home of the brave is, is not the land of the free and the home of the brave uh, anymore. People don't cherish freedom, and, and many are not particularly brave. Okay. If I could, uh, I, if I could attend a service, I'd go to a service. Not even, not even a question. All righty, everybody. Next, George, Singapore, 20 years old. Hello, Mr. Prager. I'm a big fan of your work. I'm from Singapore, a country that does not have freedom of speech. I love my country and do not believe it is evil. However, I believe that restrictions on speech should be lifted. How do I articulate my thoughts on the importance of free speech? Furthermore, how do I do this in a country that does not see this as my right? It's very hard. Very hard. This has always been unique to America, that it is in its constitution that people have free speech. That you could say anything you want in the United States is more or less unique to this day. But uh, the left everywhere on earth suppresses free speech. Sometimes the right uh, has done that, uh, but it's very rare. Uh, free speech is suppressed everywhere the left gains power. There is no exception to it in human history or in the history of the left. That's not all of human history since Marx. And that's what is happening in America, which is astonishing to those of us who grew up in a country that cherished free speech. So if your country, if Singapore does not have a tradition of free speech, it's going to be very hard for you to make the case. It's, it's like making the case for something that never existed. It's like telling people, you know, I, uh, I, 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 you, you can uh, f fly in an airplane when people never saw an airplane. What are you talking about? Free speech? And people are used to not having free speech. Look at the uh, American campus. The university campus is now used to not having free speech. People are fine with it. So you, you have a real struggle in front of you. That's why I worry about America, because the free speech issue is the most important issue that we have with regard to freedom, the most important. And we may lo we're, we're losing it. And I don't know when it comes back. People get used to it. They self-censor. They censor others. Because most people don't really care about free speech. Most people don't really care about freedom. They care about being taken care of. That's why the left is so popular. We'll take care of you. You give us your freedom, you give us your money, 
and we take care of you. Sounds great, if you're okay with that. Cole in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. Dennis, I've heard you often speak of the importance of courage. You have used the example of posting to social media something that others may disagree with while disregarding the fear of becoming unfriended. My social media feed has become hijacked by peers who have unknowingly subscribed to dangerous Marxist ideals. I have never posted my own beliefs, not from fear of retaliation, but because I see it as futile. Never have I, nor anyone I know, become convinced of the other side because of an impassioned Facebook post. It can be easy to confuse selfish virtue signaling with courage. Am I wrong to assume that sharing my beliefs on social media is not an exercise of courage? So how else can I exercise courage within my sphere of influence amidst this battle for truth? Thank you. Well, I, I think you have to, if everybody who differs with the left shuts up, then the left won. You, we've surrendered. So you, you can't do that. And it makes people who aren't on the left think, oh, the left must be right. There were no responses. If we flooded Facebook with rational arguments, and our arguments are rational, uh, that would have a big impact. So you should double down and triple down in your efforts. The issue is not, not only a one of courage, it's just it, the issue is one of, of waging a war for decency and, and goodness and liberty. That's worth, uh, that's worth posting an article. Sam 16, Chicago. Why is Nazism considered to be on the right when it was a socialist party? That's what Nazi stands for, National Socialism. Nazism is National Socialism. Thank you, Dennis, for all you do. You have added a lot to my life already. Thank you, Sam. Uh, why is Nazism considered on the right uh, when it, in fact, is National Socialism? I'll tell you why it's considered on the right. I'm not defending the notion. Good people can differ on this question. But I will answer your question. The difference between a national socialism and, let's say, Soviet socialism, uh, at least in theory, is that na national socialism, German socialism, Nazism, was rooted in race. And communism is rooted in class. Class is a left-wing issue, people say. Race is a right-wing issue, people say. That's the reason that they make this distinction. I don't think it's valid today because nearly all the racists are on the left. Because leftists say that race matters. So did the Nazis. Liberals and conservatives say race doesn't matter. One of the most important, uh, I think, uh, fireside chats I have ever given is on the notion of colorblind. If you have the number... 149. 149? It was just this The last previous one? one? Yeah, it was just the last one. <laughs> well, I was right. One of the ones I gave was the previous one. <laughs> that, and, it, and it is extremely important. The case for colorblind. Colorblind is the ideal. That was the liberal ideal when liberals were strong and the left was weak.
But now the left is strong, liberals are weak, and so colorblind is considered a bad thing. If you say race matters, you are, you are a racist. That's the defining element of racism. That skin color determines anything about you, says anything about you, is the purest form of racism. The purest. So uh, this, uh, today, the reality is the left is racist. The right says race doesn't matter. And every conservative I know, and I know many, truly believes that. We don't give a damn what your color is. Get it? I mean, don't give a damn. It's, it's, it's as irrelevant as your eye color. And as I said, I guess last time, say when people say, well, you know, oh, that's phony race blind. If, if I'm black, you notice I'm black. Of course I do. So what? I notice if you're tall. I notice if you're short. I notice if you're skinny. I notice if you're fat. I notice your eye color. I, I, I notice a whole bunch of things, but none of them matter. I notice your eye color, but it do, do, does that determine anything about you? Then why does your skin color? If you have an answer to that, I would be more than curious. By the way, more than happy to debate any prominent... Pro I mean, I'm not going to debate everybody who wants to debate me. That, that, I'd have 10,000 debates. But uh, if, if there's a prominent person uh, who reaches as many people as I do, who's on the left and wants to debate this, you name the time and you name the place. But they never debate. They smear. Leftists can't debate. Why would they? It's not based in reason. It's not based in logic, and it's not based on morality. I don't blame them for not debating. We would be more than happy to. That's the story, Morning Glory. We're living in a very difficult time, really difficult. This country is at stake. I'm not surprised. It's painful in the extreme, but I'm not shocked that there would be young people chanting in Oakland, California, death to America. It's, it's hard to believe, but the human condition is a complex one, and it's very hard to sustain something good. It's unbelievably easy to destroy a building. It's very hard to build one. Okay, everybody, I'm Dennis Prager, and I'll see you next week. Thank you for watching. If you'd like to keep these fireside chats free, please do by donating to PragerU.